Welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, go to PCAPaintEd.org. From now until September 15th, we are encouraging members to register to Paint It Forward as a way to give back to their local community. You can register individually or as a group on our website. Look for Paint It Forward under the Events tab to register. In today's podcast, we feature an episode from Ask a Painter Live with Nick Slavic. In this episode, Nick talks with Tom Drost from Estimate Rocket about the value props of your company, being on top of production and scheduling, and how the Estimate Rocket software can help you do that. I am Nick Slavic. I'm the proprietor of the Nick Slavic Painting and Restoration Company. I'm also the host of this show, Ask a Painter Live. It is a weekly live Facebook show where I use my almost three decades of experience as a master craftsperson and a trades business entrepreneur to kind of showcase the life and uh, my inner thoughts, my feelings, uh, finer points of the craft, all that good stuff. So uh, it is a absolutely beautiful Friday here. It looks beautiful there uh, on the East Coast as well, Tom. Beautiful day here as well, Nick. Uh, we're, uh, we're loving it. So frequent guest, favorite guest of the show, Tom Drost of Estimate Rocket is here today. Um, I really enjoy our conversations and so does everybody else because, uh, yes, we talk about software. We talk about estimating, but you and I love the numbers. We love the data and we, we are also both business owners and we love just kind of getting lost in all that. So, <laughs> a lot right, of fun. so- so today we've prepared a list of topics, uh, some database, some feelings based, and we're going to go through. But before, first, before we jump into that, uh, I have a link uh, if you guys want to check out Estimate Rocket. Uh, nobody loves a good value proposition more than you, Tom. So what is the Estimate Rocket value proposition for guys like me, master craftspeople, paint business owners? Yep. Um, value prop is know your numbers. You know, get a grip on your crew and and how your how your company is performing, and you know, get some data to support those feelings. I think is the real is the real deal. And I love that. And uh, so, Estimate Rocket to me is like this beautiful tool to help you be intentional about where does price come from, what happens after a job is done, and uh, it's sort of like a facilitator of guys like me who want to be intentional and want to do something better. Absolutely. Um, it, it's really key. You got to have, you have to have tools like that, just like you have to have great tools to, to work your craft. Absolutely agreed. So, all right, everybody jockeying around the screens here. So if you want uh, more information about Estimate Rocket, I do have a little screen here. There is a link there. And of course, uh, it doesn't take long and you can actually get to Tom and Kathy, uh, owners of Estimate Rocket. And uh, they are awesome business owners. They're very conscientious and they're very thoughtful as well, too. So I like uh, it reminds me of kind of like the surf prep family, the Ferias, where it's like, listen, Lest you think that, you know, it, it's impossible to get support and all that other stuff. There are some very thoughtful people at the helm ready to uh, ready to assist. So if you need more information, link there. And of course, uh, Tom would love to uh, connect with you as well. So yeah, absolutely. All right. So, Tom, we have a we have a list of topics, but I thought I'd just throw it to you right away to see if there's anything on your mind uh, before we hop in and just start talking about the nerdy stuff that we normally talk about. Uh, no, I, I'm loving the I'm loving the list of topics, actually. That, that always works good for me. You got it, because sometimes I have a tendency to snowplow ahead here and just go for it. So, all right. Um, one thing that we actually touched on in the Estimate Rocket podcast is scheduling. And uh, it's very interesting for me. Yeah, you say, ooh, for a good reason. Because, I mean, on its face, scheduling is like, call a client, tell them when we're going to start, right? It's like, right. oh, yeah. wow, that's the easiest. It's, it's like getting up and making coffee in the morning. But it is so infinitely complex. It is a... It is a trial of thousands of variables, putting them all together. And if you do it right, you are one of the finest businesses on the planet. If you do it wrong, you will lose the trust of your clients. So how do you think about scheduling? What comes to mind for you? Um, Obviously, a couple things, you know, you've got to, and and you probably know this better than me in the field, but you've got to, uh, you got to know your customers. You got to know your your team and your capacity, and understand you know where things fit, how they fit. I mean, a good a good production manager or production scheduler 
is going to have those things, you know, top of mind or have a tool that they're using that can help them plot that out and see what's already scheduled. Because the big thing about scheduling is not what you're about to schedule. It's understanding everything that's already scheduled and how things can fit in. That's really, it's like the, you know, the jigsaw puzzle where you're looking for a, a spot to fit in the puzzle for that one little thing that you want to add in or one huge thing. So the, probably the most frequent question I get revolves around something about like, what do you charge for X? The second most Mm -hmm. is how do you schedule? And it's really interesting that the knee jerk reaction is like, I think people often approach scheduling kind of like estimating, which is if I had the right piece of software and I had the right production rates and a charge rate, this is just a math equation. And it is not just a math equation. Estimating is actually way more straightforward and a solvable math problem than scheduling because on its face in my company, like there was one point where I actually listed out all the variables that go into scheduling and number one, obviously client and the job. And since the time of COVID, everybody's at home, kids are learning from home, all this other stuff that throws in another variable. You got your own personnel. Who's going to show up every day? Uh, Historically, the data would show you that 15% of your entire workforce will likely not be present each day. And it's not for bad reasons. It's because illness, kids stuff at school, things like that. You have reality. Yeah, exactly. You have reality. Life happens. And uh, especially in Minnesota, we got the weather as well, too. Mm -hmm. Um, We have uh, material availability, that sort of thing. That actually affected us for the first time. And then it's this infinite list of like, are all your vans running? Do you have all the the supplies you need? Uh, You know, can we get a hold of this person in time? Are they waiting on a contractor? It's just like if you were to make an app that would have some algorithm that would schedule for you, it would be so deceivingly complex to give you the yeah. right time and date. <laughs> yeah, it, it really, it really is. And, and I've actually, we've actually written um, scheduling applications for in a, you know, in a prior, prior life for, uh, for massive crews and not, not in the trades, but in, in another, other business. And, um, it's super complex, but it, yeah. but like anything else, it takes a combination of of knowledge and tools to do it. Because there's no tool that understands that that knows which fifteen percent is going to be out this week, and 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 so you've got to you've got to have those try to juggle all those variables. You got to try to get down as much as you can that you know is going to be solid, yeah. and then. You know, minimize. I guess minimize the number of crazy variables that you have no control over is the best optimization you can do. Yeah, and and so uh, ask a painter live. The show, this show, could be rebranded and and should be called a series of unsatisfying answers to all of your questions because. Uh, this last quarter, I assumed the role of operations manager in my company mm-hmm. and the solution to scheduling. Um, I've actually found one of the best solutions is a great operations manager because an operations mm-hmm. manager in my company is the interface between all of the technicians, the master crafts people, right. and then the project management people, because project yep. management isn't just crew focused, it's client focused. And in my right. company, it's probably 70% client focused, 30% crew focused. Right. The solution to great scheduling is knowing what price to charge for a job that will give you an hourly budget based on a charge rate in your company. So um, Mm -hmm. a a project will say, you know, we're on one right now that's got 407 hours on it. So we have that 407 hour project and it's a math problem. If we have four people there uh, working 40 hour weeks, it's a 10 week project, 10 total human weeks, you know, and we can actually overlay that on the calendar. Now, the way that the operations manager comes into play is great, you have 407 hours, but how do you know it's going to end in 407 hours? Or hopefully under that, a good operations manager will be checking in daily, making a plan, holding them accountable so that you actually can have a predictable end date. And and unpredictable end dates feel to me like the the worst way, the best way, the worst way to ruin a schedule. So um, scheduling for me and my company, we've, as I've assumed this operations manager role, I found that I've helped out my production team, my scheduling team a lot by just keeping these uh, projects on schedule. It's, it, and, right. and that is, that goes back to that unsatisfying answer. Like, how do you schedule? It's like, number one, have predictable jobs and understand yeah. how long it takes them. And that is like a daily, sometimes hourly yeah. effort. 
on, on, on account of somebody. So, <laughs> yeah, as you build, I mean, especially as you grow, it becomes more and more complex. And as you said, you have the client side as to, you know, who can I send there at a, at a particular client? And then you've got that capacity and then you've got the unknowns and it really is, it's a challenge. I agree with you. I know um, I have, there's a couple other companies we work with that, that they have dedicated schedulers. That's yeah. their job. And they're not even, I don't even think they're operations managers per se. They just coordinate the schedule for the team. And I think that's one of those things that as you grow, you go through these different phases where, you know, when you first start, you're the operations manager, you're the painter, you're the CEO, you're everything. But as you grow, you go through these phases and, and there's a certain number of teams. And we explored this before about uh, uh, estimate. You know, how many, when do I need an estimator? When do I need a salesperson? So what, what you find is that now that you have this, um, this division of labor that happens as you grow where, okay, we didn't used to have a full-time scheduler or even a full-time operations manager. Now it's a critical component of our business. And that person is a critical, you know, critical to your operations and success. Yeah. And, and think about it like um, a, a bad person at the helm of scheduling is going to have lots of short days, lots of half days, maybe even downtime for crews. And then that could be, I mean, obviously you're not generating revenue, but I've heard it through the painter internets hundreds and hundreds of times. I'm out of here. This painter can't keep me busy. I'm gone. You may actually have attrition in your workforce if you have this right. wonky, weird schedule, uh, things like that. Right. So. Very important. Well, and the good the good scheduler can also pick up on the uh, the uh, capacity and understand that hey, you know what that that's a half we got a half day wrapping up there. You got to plan ahead that at that half day, this guy's either going to do some shop work or they're going to or we got some other finish ups or maybe we got five little things that need to get done when that half day is over. We put them on those, but it takes somebody that can that has time to actually oversee all that stuff and keep up with the different projects. And that's it. And interesting you would say that because uh, I keep, um, as operations manager, I typically do a site kickoff at 7 a.m., a site yeah. visit after that. I come back and get some work done in my own office. Right. And from like one to four, I support my office team in our actual shop office. And I sit next to my coordinator and my two project managers. And Holly and Carly, my two project managers, uh, they own the schedule every day. And right. I love to hear them take this little Tetris game every day of they're looking at this huge, like virtual board of all these little Tetris pieces and 47.2 <laughs> hours, 407 hours, this, that, that. Right. This one is a perfect 20 hour project, two people, one mm -hmm. day but it's a deck and we got weather coming. So then, okay, put this over here and I'm, I'm, I'm getting my work done. I'm also listening to this sort of like mm -hmm. Tetris game getting done in real time. And it is the most beautiful thing ever. And it's a combination of like a visual selection of our queue of jobs and then two people actually interacting and getting it done right. together. And, and it points out a lot of the faults. And one of the, one of the overlays in that too, is like when you talk about variables, they're bonused on the profitability of jobs. So they both want to get a lot of jobs produced. And if right. Holly has too many jobs one week, I'll actually hear her say it's getting the teeter totters getting lopsided, Carly, let's switch in one of your jobs. And it's just like, mm -hmm. Oh my God, this is just this like beautiful interplay of variables there. So, <laughs> but it's complex. It's com right. it's, it's interaction between people and not hitting, you know, run the program on Google and getting it done. right. <laughs> well, and you, and you have to, the other challenge to it is you do have to sit on that hairy edge of using all your people to full capacity. Cause if you don't, you got another problem, you know? Yep. So th it's that you can't under schedule, you can't over schedule. You gotta, you gotta be constantly managing it just right. Yeah. I think we have leaps and bounds in schedule improvement after I stopped doing it because I'm just like, well, listen, if all the stars align and everybody has nine bang energy drink, I think we can produce this in a day. And it was wildly unreasonable. And I was like, yeah. well, listen, we want to be world-class. We want to do that. Holly yeah. and Carly will actually take into account one of, one of our uh, sort of we make lists of things uh, like lessons learned and, and on scheduling. One of them is schedule a light end of the week for most crews. And you right. know, I shouldn't say most crews, maybe like three out of 12 crews, just schedule a light end of the week because you never yeah. know what's going to happen. And that has, right. that has added to like lower the stress because 
They're not having to call all the people from the next week because we didn't get my magical, insanely productive schedule. So, (laughs) but do they call that the Nick factor or the Slavic factor? Which well, I think I think it starts with a curse word (laughs) normally. So, (laughs) but no, and again, great lesson for guys like you and me, Tom. Which is, uh, I kind of feel, and and let me know if I'm wrong speaking for you, but I feel like guys like us are kind of generalists. We can do Mm -hmm. everything pretty good, and we can keep all these little plates spinning. But yeah. when we're able to take a step back and say, yeah, I listen, I can schedule better than most, but if we want to be good, we got to get somebody who's actually going to be thoughtful about this. And they do right. it way better than me now. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the funny thing when you're, you know, again, as you go through your phases of your, of your business, you start out, you know, we're, you, the way you grow partly is by being really good in the weeds, right? We're in the weeds, man, we know we can get us out of the weeds. Unfortunately, as as you mature, as your company matures, it's staying out of the weeds becomes yeah. your helping your company stay out of the weeds becomes your job. Yeah, a different role. You know. Bonjia, uh, Danilo, uh, thank you so much for watching. Danilo's a frequent uh, frequent watcher there, so thank you so much, uh, Mr. Chris Shank, a fellow named Chris Shank, which I think we both know. Uh, <laughs> at what point in your company's growth do you need to hire someone? Uh, more or less dedicated to scheduling. What, what do you think, Tom? Well, that's a good question. You can probably answer that better than me. But I would say when, uh, as, the, as the CEO, you've got enough crews that you can no longer do your CEO job because you're spending too much time on scheduling. That's a pretty good indicator that, you know, and sometimes you can do it gradually. A lot of, I've seen people that had multiple project managers and they pull a project manager back can start doing more of the schedule overseeing as well as still running his crews, or maybe they get a reduced number of crews that they're managing. So there's ways to ease into it. Um, but it's really one of those, uh, feeling things actually in a lot of ways, because you got to feel out when, you know, when you start realizing that you're blowing the budget or that you're blowing the, the due dates on your jobs, then it's an indicator that you're not, there's not enough, uh, emphasis on scheduling going on. Agreed. And uh, initially, when I when I hired my first coordinator, maybe a year, year and a half ago, kind of an admin, uh, mm-hmm. I was like, great, let them take over scheduling, remove it from my project management staff, and that'll free them up. But yeah. the problem is, my two project managers know those jobs better than anything else. And and mm-hmm. they, they're like, in, intimately knowledgeable of the inner workings. And so we actually right. found that keeping the scheduling with uh, my two project managers, they probably spend about an hour a day together collectively, right. give or take, putting out yeah. that schedule. And uh, yeah. uh, so I would say it, to have one person solely dedicated, we would probably have to be twice our size now. We're about a $2.5 to $3 million company. I would say between five and six, you can yeah. literally have somebody just putting that Tetris game together every day. Exactly. But yeah, and I think that's a good number, by the way, from some other experience that I've seen and had is, you know, somewhere in the probably four to six range or something like that. And again, depends on the type of work you're doing and, you know, how complex the jobs are, how long the jobs run. Yeah. Those kinds of things will, you know, change those factors a little bit. But I think that's absolutely right on the money. And it's really interesting uh, as we're planning out the next phase of growth, which is about that four to six million dollar kind of uh plateau benchmark safe space right. um it's it's when you start um hyper focusing and uh getting specialized people where you start you start having to have a conversation about having an hr manager and and it's not just nick gets the w4 and the and the i9 anymore and does the safety training like no it's such a big machine you actually need somebody to keep you in compliance and that's where i start seeing a scheduler come into play a possible general manager a pure operations manager and even just like a scheduler and things like that Uh, so and even i've even seen a shop and logistics like somebody just standing at the shop door taking inventory getting things out so yeah it feels like in that two to three million dollar in in the one million dollar you kind of have to do it all give or take you might have the option to have one support staff an estimator or a project manager at my level you can have two estimators two project managers maybe an office admin so you do have kind of like you know it's spread around it feels like the next step is that i you know it would be tough to add a scheduler now but i think it would be critical at four to six like you said 
So yeah, and one of the challenges there, as you do grow, go through the growth phases like that, is making sure that you don't lose. So there's a beauty to the small team where you're, you you do know everything, and everybody on the team knows everything, and it gets scary when. As you grow, you don't know everything anymore. It's like, wait, you know, but that community, that team communications thing becomes super important at that point. And you got to, you know, build that as you go. But as you grow, you get, you do have those luxuries of being able to afford, you know, more dedicated people or different job, you know, splitting out some job roles instead of having one person having too many roles and it's a very it's it's a thing that you got everybody has to adjust to slightly different you know times and and places but it's uh it's a fun process part of the growth ride so it's really interesting um my my friend and colleague jason paris has said many times and i steal a lot of the things he says but uh you know there's a there's an adage that the people who got you here sometimes are not the people to take you to the next level and i like what jason says which is you what you you got your company here and you may not be the person to take your company to the next level and that's always like oh sure i'm sure that's true but but we're all we're all different right tom like we're that we're that one person that doesn't apply to we're the exception to the rule (laughs) exactly so what i've what i've really my coach i've been working with uh, uh somebody very closely over the last bunch of years because i do want to stay intimately involved in the running of this business and between Jason Paris and my coach, they all basically said, listen, Nick, based on your personality type, you are not the one that's going to be at the helm of a professionalized, very large organization. Like you could force yourself to do it. It's not your personality. So in between the time where you are now to when you can afford a true general manager or president, you need to put on your professional hat and learn these traits so you can build out these job descriptions and do it. And over the right. last year or so, this whole part of like, bringing it back to what you said, people like me are specialized. People like you are very specialized. And I think my impression of you is that you've actually professionalized yourself and you've actually grown with your company. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with that right now. So, but people like us, people like me, are our sole purpose, we are the barbarians with the axes first over the hill. And we are... Our sole purpose is to take chaos and form it into something and grow and fast growth and rally the troops. But when it's there and you got to do goal setting and review meetings and HR compliance, all of a sudden it's just like, oh man, this sucks. You know, I didn't, I, I, what happened to the scrappy entrepreneur, the, the putting out fires? And, and you actually come to realize that there's two phases in most people's lives, which is that scrappy put out the fire entrepreneurial phase, which is necessary but then right. you got to tip that teeter totter and you either have to find somebody professional or professionalize yourself. So right. that's kind of what I'm yeah. in the midst of right now. And it's, it's putting on a shoe that does not quite fit yet for me, Tom. <laughs> yeah, I know it's, it's, re- it is a challenge because I think we're both, you know, we, we like the, we like getting things done and being in the middle of all the, all the fray. And I know for me, it's been a real challenge. And by the way, at some point, I changed, I changed coaches about, I'd say probably going on three years now ago. And you talk about the person who got you here, isn't going to get you there. Well, that's a great example of it. He's a great coach that I used for many years, but he was no longer the right coach and needed a different coach to get me to the next level. And I think everybody needs to be open to that as well. It's, it's a, it's one of those things where you love the guy, but that person may not be able to get you to the next step because that's not what their focus is. Uh, We are going down a different path right now, Tom, if you don't mind. What do you look for when you look for a coach? That's a good first a fit. Um, You know, it has to be someone that you relate to uh, that you that you know you can work with someone that you can be honest with that's going to be honest with you. Uh, we recently started about three years ago, as I said, started working with a uh, fellow by the name of Corwin Smith. Uh, he's great, great for us, been working, and he does work with a lot of contractors too. Um, it's uh, it's really that first thing is the bond. The second thing that you, someone you can trust and talk to. The second piece is that they explain their process and you listen to that and go, yeah, I, I can see where that's going to level me up to the next place. Not and 
you don't want somebody who you already agree with every single thing they say necessarily. You just want to, you need to agree with where you think they can take you. And it's a, it's one of those feel things. It's like when you go out with a client, go out to uh, do an estimate or meet with a client and you think to yourself, Ooh, I don't really want this job. This is not, this is not going to be good. You know, you got to have that feeling or you get that, man, this, I can't wait to work with this person because they're going to, it's going to be fun. We're going to have a good time. So it's kind of hard. You look at their creds, who else they've worked with, and you don't necessarily want someone who works with companies exactly like you are right now because you're trying to go to that next step. And there are definitely hurdles there in that growth, growth path. Yeah, there's there's a lot of value in finding people hyper focused on your industry and your thing. And I think yeah. that's insanely helpful. But there's also a lot of value to finding somebody who shares your core values, but has no idea right. about contracting or software yeah. or anything else, yeah. because I like being gapped and and gapping is like where you are now. And yeah. somebody shows you where you could potentially be. And sure. the difference between those two places is sometimes um, demoralizes people. It does not do that for me. It has the opposite effect. It fires me up to where I just want to do more spreadsheets for my business every right. time I get gapped. And sometimes the best gapping you get is from somebody who has no idea what a painting business is or how it's right. run. And they yeah. And you describe it to them and they're like, why the hell do you do that? That doesn't make any sense at all. And you're like, well, everybody does it. They're like, wow, we need to explore that. And you're like, right. that's what I like right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who, who's your, if you don't mind sharing, who's your coach, Nick? Yeah. So I have, um, uh, I have a person I met through a mutual friend who is a, this is a very special thing. And I don't give his name on not Cause it's a secret. Just, just that's because right. cool. it's one of those weird connections. I don't want to exploit it. He is a, uh, <laughs> He is a professor of entrepreneurship at a college and right. it, is, it is, I am so blessed to have this connection and I'm just it, like humbled and awed. And this person is a no nonsense, somebody who's grown big businesses, sold them, went into academia, yeah. teaches and heads up and creates schools of entrepreneurships and colleges. And boy, cool. if you want to talk getting gapped, it's like every, every day I've heard words that I don't understand. I'm introduced yeah. to concepts I don't understand. And most of yeah. all, this person looks me in the face and laughs at me and says, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You should not be saying that. That is not a real thing. I love being called on BS. And it's just like, yeah. that fits my personality. <laughs> no, that's, and that's what you need. That person that makes you think differently about things. Yep. I absolutely really love that. I've been coached by a lot of people in the industry and it's awesome. I absolutely love it at this phase. Um, I don't really need to be introduced to job costing. I have job descriptions. We have an employee manual. A lot of our industry, the coaches like help with the nuts and bolts stuff and then give a little right. ethos. Right now, I need to be challenged. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's, we got the, we got the nuts and bolts. I need to be pushed. And that's kind of what I like, Tom. So, right. Yeah. That's what it takes. It's hard to, it's hard at the, it's hard at the top sometimes because you don't, there isn't necessarily someone to push you. And that's one of the reasons you, you know, everybody needs a coach because otherwise, uh, you know, it's too easy to get complacent or to say, Hey, things are good. Why do I want to, you know, push the envelope here? And, and I think they help you look out to the future and see what the possibilities are. And, and, uh, also one of the things that I've observed is, uh, it's really important to, as you go through as a craftsman, I was, in fact, I was talking to a, a, a cabinet maker uh, the other day, and my thought process was uh, they weren't thinking about their future. They're great craftsmen. I mean, they're doing beautiful work and great guy, great with customers. But, and I said, you know, you guys, you, you gotta, you gotta get more stuff on Instagram or something like that. Yeah. And, and they said, eh, yeah, well, you know, well, I said, do you want to grow? And they said, well, yeah, yeah. I said, well, do you, do you want to ever be able to retire and have anything? And they were like, oh, you know, cause they're in their thirties and they're like, they're not thinking that way. And as you get, you know, bigger and older, you start thinking, Hey, you know, I'm probably not going to be in the trenches my whole life. And my, and what I said was, you know, one of the things you can do is you, your role changes at some point, if, if you grow some, to being mentor and teacher mm -hmm. and helping yeah. people, helping other people grow. And man, that is one of the most satisfying things in the whole 
you know, in the whole world to me is to watch people around you grow and, and go after their thing. So, no, uh, and, and Tom, uh, whether we like it or not, uh, we are the visionaries of these companies and, uh, having somebody outside of you to hold you accountable, to create the vision and then to follow through with it. That's kind of a big thing. And, uh, really you know, nice. by default, there is nobody else in the company that's going to do that. You know, people may have ideas for you, but you actually have to pay for it and it, and it's tied to your future. So if nothing else, a coach is there to say, Hey, what happens 10 years from now? And what are you going to do today about that? And I'm going to check in right. next week to see if you did that. So, right. I like that. Yeah, really good. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're good me. at, we're good at going down the rabbit hole. Aren't we? <laughs> I, I love that, Tom. I love it. I love it. Uh, also, um, one last thing before we talk about backlog. I love to talk about backlog and schedule. So yeah, 40 minutes later, we'll come to that. But I've I've really been educated on the difference between <laughs> like the sliding scale of what would be coaching. There's accountability partners, there's coaches, and there's mentors. And you have to think about them differently, at least in my world. Accountability yeah. partner is somebody you have to look up to. And even if you just want to be like, hey, I want to wake up at a certain time every day. If you have somebody who's good at that and you would feel bad if you disappointed them, you can actually do a daily check-in and they'll, they will contact you and say, Hey, what time did you check in today? Or I want you to post a picture. If you say you want to wake up at 6am every day at 602, I want you to send me a text of a picture of you standing up (laughs) wide-eyed holding today's newspaper. You know what I mean? One of those things. Um, That's at its basic level. Accountability partners, like I have a specific thing I want to do. You're going to help me. And I would feel bad if I disappointed you. A coach is somebody who kind of does that, but then also has a whole bunch of knowledge to push you. Right. For me, the the purple unicorn is the mentor, which is Mm. accountability partner, coach, but also somebody who is far beyond you. Wisdom, experience, family, um, state of life, and somebody that you look up to so much that if you ever disappointed them, you would be heartbroken. Also, they want, they, they want to see you succeed in a way where if you don't succeed, they would be heartbroken. That is a thing. That's a relationship that kind of starts off as accountability, maybe even coach, but that's a Mm -hmm. long-term thing. You don't find a mentor, you you create a mentor relationship. And that's the, that's the thing that we love. (laughs) Yeah. That's, those are the really, that's a really exciting relationship because it's not, um, it's not the same as a coach. It's, it's, uh, it's a whole different thing. It's a bond and more of a bond thing that you get with people that, you know, inspires you to do better. Whereas the coach, you know, this is what, this is the right thing to do. Yeah. Okay. But when they inspire you to go, this is the thing I want to do. That's a whole different, whole different animal. That's exactly it. Genuine care and love for another human being at its most simple level. And you want somebody else to succeed. And boy, so I've been on a quest for a couple of years to find a mentor and they always start, you know, you have to start off with coaching, but I'm trying to foster those relationships. And I hopefully fingers crossed, you know, the lifelong (laughs) ambition is to find that mentor that'll stick with you for 10, 20 years. So, yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, backlog. Boy, well, we touched on this on the uh, Estimate Rocket podcast. People, I don't think there's any bigger chasm between data and feelings than when we talk to painters about backlog. So what yeah. what, what, what are your thoughts on backlog, Tom? <laughs> yeah, my, my, uh, my thoughts are that depending upon where you are in your growth stage, <laughs> backlog is a really important thing. And, and it's, it's always a balance be, between being able to deliver and you know how much business is in the queue but having a backlog gives you the uh, again especially earlier stages gives you the ability to to make some decisions like hiring that in a much more comfortable way if you know you've got x amount of business already queued up then you can easily add i mean not easily necessarily to add staff but you can go searching for staff and find people that can fulfill the work help you fulfill those that work. Most people are not going to be unhappy about finding out, oh, my job is going to get done sooner. That's awesome. So you can, you know, it's not that you want to push everything out as far as you possibly can, but you want to make sure you've got your, you know, certainly your short-term queue filled up. And if you can schedule out a little further and you're looking to grow, then that gives you that opportunity to do it with some level of comfort that like, hey, I just hired six people and uh, geez, I only got work for a month. 
that's not a comfortable feeling as you're in that growth stage because then you're doing two things you're instead of you're working on getting this these new hires up to speed and you're also killing yourself to go get more sales because now you gotta you gotta be able to feed those folks with work and that that double kind of doubles the stress level there um so so i just see backlog as a it's a cushion concept to help make you know kind of ease that pain of saying of pulling the trigger to hire when you know you should and i think it stands in the way of growth for some people uh because they don't want to overcommit. and and to me backlog isn't necessarily overcommitting. it's it's looking into the future and seeing and, and managing that capacity and and growth Agreed. And uh, <clears throat> so typically when when we talk about backlog, we run into, you know, arguably 99% of our industry is single person painters. And for most of them, a point of pride is, hey, I'm booked out 18 months. Right. I'm, I'm booking into late 2023, things like that. And right. you know, for seasoned professionals like us, it's like, hey, you know what? That's a sign that you're selling and people want your stuff. And if you believe your clients and then they're truly going to wait somewhere between eight and, you know, 16 months, good for you. Uh, that data yeah. point does not hold true for me. Um, yeah. my clients will not do that, uh, at all when it feels like we are in a fairly transactional business where somebody decides mm -hmm. they're going to get their house painted. They get three estimates as quick as they can. And within right. that week, they're going to make the choice and they would like it done as soon as possible after that. Possible. Yeah. So, I think about it. I, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a bad thing, but I would say be very careful how you think about that because if anybody's on my schedule for more than six months, the possibility of them falling off goes higher than fifty percent on there. And yeah. uh, if if somebody will wait for you, great. Uh, but you could basically you know the 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 economic theory which we talked about on the Estimate Rocket podcast is it's the supply and demand, which is if something is is very inexpensive <laughs> people will buy lots of it and when i see somebody booked out 12 to 24 months i'm thinking there's a very high possibility based on economics that you have underpriced right. your work <laughs> right yeah and, and i think i and i do think that i mean i would say over six is probably yeah. getting beyond i i think of you know being three three to six months out <laughs> is would be healthy yeah over that i agree with you totally i mean you i'm not that gets kind of the ridiculous level on the other hand if you're in a seasonal area for exteriors having your exteriors for the next season booked out ahead of time makes a lot of sense then you know what you got and as you said you can start adjusting your prices the farther out your backlog goes the easier it gets to make those ones going farther out to raise your prices to, to you know shorten up that demand so I, I agree there's some there are definitely some economics issues involved there but at those early especially in the early growth stages i think it's uh if you don't have it it's a hard it just makes that decision to pull the trigger a lot harder you know? and you know at, since we did the podcast uh i wanted to i wanted to have like the next evolution of thought on backlog and yeah. to me um it, it there's objective backlog and there's subjective backlog. And I got to thinking a lot about that, which is a lot of people say there's a feelings-based backlog, which is I, a whole bunch of people said yes, and we're waiting for it. Um, an objective backlog is we have a marketing system that knows if I spend this much money, this many leads come in, right. uh, that will create that many estimates and that many sold jobs. And historically, our queue is X amount of dollars and we produce X amount a week because we track that via job costing and goal tracking. Sure. And objective backlog lets you keep a, a, a razor thin lead time, which is one of the objectives in my company. So yeah. we have what would be considered to most people a hair raising scary <laughs> nail biting margin yes uh two to four weeks generally i some jobs yeah. are backed up farther some jobs we can help you immediately sure. we have you know 25 to 40 people working at any time that that would make some people very very unsure about themselves now here's the, here's the thing though within that four-week backlog we have a half million dollars sold waiting to be produced that is that 
what we just have in our queue is about four times the equivalent of about four average painting companies, what they will produce in a year. So for me, people would say, oh, my God, the feeling is that's a razor thin thing. And I would say, well, we basically have the equivalent of four painting companies sold and ready to go. That is a pile of work that we have to produce. And, and right. the thing that stresses me out is making sure the labor force is there to produce right. that work. So it, it feels like a razor thin margin. But I do know that any certain week within probably... 36 hours, I can call my flyer distribution guy, we can get flyers distributed. And for $2,500, we can get 45 leads in a week, which will turn into about 35 estimates. And so for me, we can keep that narrow sort of margin because we know how to, we know how to replicate it every week. Uh, The opposite of that is that subjective thing where it's like, I don't advertise at all. In the summer, I'm completely swamped. December and January are tough. And all of a sudden, you're you're riding high on your two-year lead time in the summer. But all of a sudden, right. you've got gaps in your schedule in December. And that's that feelings-based, subjective backlog roller coaster. But yeah. Right. So, yeah. But the other thing that, that you mentioned, though, is that you, you have, you know, you've got 500K of backlog. So I'm sure the economics side of you side of you says oh and that's good that covers my payroll for x period of time i feel good and that's where because of your scale that that short backlog is actually a lot more than most companies you know do in 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 a long time so i think that 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 those balance out and i don't think you need as long a backlog although I think it probably flips over the other way too. If you get into larger commercial jobs that are mm-hmm. running, you know, six months to a year long jobs that are huge, that becomes a different, you know, different game and a different, you know, different type of scheduling and planning. As it's a, there's a million variables no matter where we go. Million variables, <laughs> and <clears throat> I love my commercial people. I just talked with a, <laughs> I just talked with a commercial contractor the other day. Uh, accountability partner. And yeah, yeah, the last week sold two and a half million dollars worth of work right. that'll keep, you know, some of his crews busy for the better part of 18 months. And that right. is a completely different thing than my yeah. business, which is 6,000 average job size, 50% mm-hmm. success ratio. We're going to yeah. do 725 jobs, 6,000 bucks a pop. We're a transactional mm-hmm. sort of business that right. does that. So we can rely on that churn where, you know, if, if one of our jobs falls off, listen, we got 61 more to backfill. If one right. of those jobs falls off on a commercial contractor, he may have 20 guys for a year out of work. So it's, it's again, right. it's like how you think about backlog is you can have one job for a year or you could have 720 and it's just, it's all, it's all subjective. And, and for yeah. us, as we grow this business, we we're sophisticated enough with our marketing, our job costing, our estimating that now we can start playing with that, uh, with that lead time because yeah. I believe a huge competitive advantage is the thought experiment would be if your price, if somebody will wait two years for it, why not just get it done now? Why defer that income? Why have to change that price? So we want to be able to estimate within a week or two and start within one to three weeks for somebody. And especially for people younger than us, Tom, uh, they're living in the Amazon (laughs) one-click world where when they make a decision, they kind of just want it done. They're not going to wait a year. So You'll be here in an hour, right? (laughs) Exactly. And that's like, I have made this decision and the first human to offer me the correct amount of value is going to take it. I don't care. How if you pride yourself on two years backlog, like I am going to choose somebody this week, you know? So, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, no, so that's, that's interesting. That, that does bring up had... one other really good point about, um, um, so when you do your investment portfolio, what do they tell you? Diversify. Yeah. And so the diversification in, in many businesses is the size of your jobs. And so you probably want, you know, in general, this mix of you don't want all little jobs and you don't want all huge jobs. You want some balance between large and small because that helps you fill in all the ups and downs in the holes, too. There's just there's so many variables depending upon where you're at. <laughs> no, I, love, I love that. That comes back to the scheduling thing because, you know, I've been, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for the last six or eight weeks, I've been keeping regular office hours in support of my staff. And I love that interplay between all of our crazy Google matrices, between a whiteboard where they hash out some ideas. And we're actually like that interplay of interior, exterior, weather, 
queue time. This person's been waiting longer, but this one's a better fit for this crew. Like mm -hmm. that in that intimate sort of like interplay between all of those right. things of, hey, we can only have one big drywall project going, one big trim project, two cabinet jobs, three walls, two decks and four big exteriors at once. Because if we put right. everybody on decks and we have a rain day, everybody gets a day right. off, yeah. you know, yeah. so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a wonderful wow. thing. So. Um, the last bit of information that I'll reiterate about that is something that I always bring up when we talk about schedule and backlog, which is I love my master crafts people, my fellow master crafts people, but every single one of them will say, I'm the best, mm -hmm. I'm the most expensive, I'm booked out for 18 months, and everybody's going to wait for me. And there's there's so much right and so much wrong with that statement. I know. And when we actually that it that usually comes from somebody who has never job costed god help their hearts and mm -hmm. when we had some mini masters classes here in this actual war room during the time of covid where people were bringing in three of their jobs that they're done and, and again i'm the best yeah. i'm the most expensive in my area i'm backlogged forever we found out we had a lot of come to jesus moments where those same people made 24 dollars an hour in revenue generation but mm -hmm in their mind, they have never come to terms with that number. They've never seen it, but right. the client was in tears. They gave them food every day on the job site, the check cashed and they didn't go bankrupt. So that was a win, but a win is subjective. You can win by staying in business or you can win by actually making money or both. And right. uh, a lot of these people have never really come to terms with that. So again, it's a yeah. feelings based thing where, um, we do a thought experiment with a lot of uh, single owner operators where, yeah, what would happen with your eight month lead time if you just triple your prices? Well, you'd go down to about a, a you know, an, a, a seven week lead time, which is still a ton yeah. of work. You would sure. make three times the money and still have plenty of work. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, there's definitely a lot of ways to slice it. And, and again, and again, you, you keep up with it. I think sometimes you take for granted how well you keep up with things too, because that's an important part of it that you know, not everybody is as tuned as you are to doing these things. And so there's, you know, how you manage that is going to vary. Your mileage is going to vary from, from owner to owner and company to company. And, and, you know, some are going to be at the end of the road, you're going to be $50 million companies and some yes. of them are still going to be less than a million after yep. the same amount of years. So. Right before that. the show, uh, we were talking about um, something that leads back to the, instead of the Ask a Painter live show, the series of unsatisfying answers to all your basic <laughs> questions show, which is the <laughs> weekly accounting of job costing, goal tracking, holding people accountable, mm -hmm. uh, IDSing, identify, discussing, and solving, solving a project yeah. if it didn't hit good gross profit. And if you right. do that on a micro level weekly with your team, you detect patterns, you solve those patterns and you learn yeah. a lesson that you don't repeat. And again, that is like people want an app. People want a, uh, a magic human to come into their business. And certainly you right. can add those in, but that's not going to do it alone. It's that super unsexy day-to-day -day slogging it out in the trenches, looking at job right. costing numbers. <laughs> yeah, it really is. I mean, you have to have that. Yeah. You just, it just doesn't work without it. It's the baseline data for everything. Like on the on the pyramid of uh, beautiful data, like all that job costing and goal tracking stuff is on the bottom. And you honestly can't make any decisions. I mean, at the top, I would say like budgeting and cash flow. You can't even start to even have that discussion until you have rock solid right. job costing numbers to feed that data up through your company. Right. Unquestionably. So speaking of data, something I showed you right before the show uh, yeah. is a hot piece of data from one of my master's classes. And what I'm going to try to do, uh, I'm going to try to jockey this around. Give me one second. Sure. There we go. I think that's about the best I can do it here. So this is uh, a very interesting uh, piece of data from my company. You are the estimate rocket guy. I am the dude out here slogging it out, doing estimates, sometimes 800 a year. So we get to see both ends of this thing. You get data Perfect. from people all over the place. And I'm out here right. slogging it away, creating that data. Um, when I think about estimating, I think about a triangle, which is sort of mm -hmm. like a triangulate on price, which is gut and experience, which is what most of us do, which I did most of the time. 
There is right. production rates when you measure a job, time a job, and then you can actually figure out how much wall can I paint in an hour? You know, 76 right. cents a square foot. Eventually you get a price. But the thing that's the most interesting for me, Tom, is market rate. And mm -hmm. market rate is not something foreign to us. It's what do you sell your house for? What's the price of a gallon of gas? The stock market, uh, God help right. us. And But nobody <laughs> does this for painting. Market rate pricing to me is, well, people will say, well, Nick, what's your charge rate? And I would say, I don't care. I right. want it to be very high. I charge market rate or what I think is market rate. I want to charge the most I can for this job while still giving yeah. value to the client while still keeping my business uh, in business. So yeah. uh, it's a very, the only way you can come across this I've found is to do a whole bunch of estimates. We'll likely do 1500, 1600 estimates this year and sure. you measure the success ratio of those, how many you sell, how many you do not sell. And uh, you overlay that with, do we have enough work for our company? And if that answer is yes, then we want to push that SR as high as we can. And when we start seeing the SR drop off, when we raise prices, right. we know we've hit that weird threshold. So yeah. with that all being said, with that all being said, mm -hmm. I have measured, um, uh, we do this crazy thing in my um, uh, master's classes, my estimating master's class where I, we anonymously estimate, and sometimes with 150 people in a room, the same wow. bedroom, a wall repaint. And we measure it for hours used, amount of materials, and total price. And we actually aggregate that into a spreadsheet. And that's a spreadsheet I yeah. have here, which is people think they have a magic pricing formula. People think it's a trade secret. When you look at some of the major geographic, disparately yeah. organized areas, a sure. lot of Market pricing is basically kind of all the same. So uh, what you yeah. see here in like Newton, Massachusetts, up by you guys, the average price for a bedroom is $659. Seattle, yeah. Washington, $679. San Rafael, California, Bay Area, $692. Um, wow. now Minneapolis is kind of the outlier. I think we're super humble, and I actually think we're a little more accurate. $528. But <laughs> <laughs> But what's interesting when you when you look at a lot of when you look at that market data, magically we all generally come across about the same price. Right. Now, what you also see in that graph is there are some nutcases out there who are charging or or say they charge twenty four hundred dollars for a bedroom wall repaint. And now whether right. that's true or not, listen, I hope it's true for you. But I've not seen examples of people charging $2,400, even right. in Manhattan, even in San Francisco, uh, Silicon Valley, things like that. So right. um, yeah, but it, it was a really interesting sort of uh, market rate piece of data. And one of the things that I promise people in my master's classes is I can give you a piece of data that you're never going to find anywhere else. That's almost impossible, which is Right. Technically, all the people that work in your area, possibly even your competitors, are in this room, and I'm going to tell you basically what you all charge, and it's all going to be right. anonymous. And so, yeah. for for me, fun little thought experiment, Tom. Yeah, I think that I think you're getting to a big point that most people that find it find it really hard to grasp, and that is that at the end of the day, there is that there is a market rate for things, right? You'll get blips. I mean, we just have gone through this weird housing pricing period where stuff was just off the rails. It was a blip. It's, yep. it's gone now or gone for the moment. Anyway, it may come back someday. You know, I've only seen it one other time in my many years, but, but you're right. The fact is, and this comes down to the estimate, how you estimate a big part of how you estimate it does come down to what what's the what's the market rate for us and i think the people that you see because so, we have some customers that are in areas that are that can that can and do charge way different than anybody else does and it's it's just they're in that market and and outside of that market you're not going to get it inside of that market not everybody's getting it but some are and you just gotta so that goes to knowing your market but these numbers are great because you look at the at the numbers and the averages of things and then you start to realize, okay, we're we're doing good or we're on the high end, the low end. It's like yeah. that that is almost like the price per square foot when you go look at the real estate, you know, real estate listings, right? We can see all these different prices because all the houses are different, but at the end of the day, what's your price per square foot? Yep. And I, I'm so envious. I'm so envious of realtors and Zillow because they can pull up a map, hover over a house and it'll give you a Zestimate, you know, yeah. uh, and, and we know it's not perfect. But what if right. you could hover over a deck 
and it would say ah, average yeah. price 1200 for you know a, a translucent or 1800 for two coats of solid i mean like that's what right. the realtors have at their fingertips they don't know how lucky they are to have that because it'll right. get them in the general area so exactly yeah and and Crazy. the one other the one other wrinkle that a lot of people don't think about is lead time by business size mm -hmm. uh, and pricing by business size. Um, and the thought experiment sure. always goes in my mind is if this company disappeared that I'm running and it was just single person, master craftsperson, Nick, I would immediately double every single price I have and I would still be booked out six months. I would probably have a longer right. lead time for the fact that I don't need that much work. You just don't need right. that much work as a single person painter. Right. My God, if you have week long jobs, you only need 50 jobs a year. We need 750 in my company and right. we have an apprenticeship program. We have people who haven't been around for 30 years. So mm -hmm. think about the situation I'm in for the next six months in the winter. Right. December and January is a wasteland. It's hard. once a Christmas tree goes up, it's hard to get home improvement <laughs> projects done. <laughs> and I get a whole bunch of people to keep busy. So naturally my prices are going to go down. Um, mm -hmm. and it, so that we can keep this machine running, keep these people learning and going, it would be one of the biggest disservices I could do to another person, especially a single person painter to hand over my pricing guide and say, you now have all the master secrets. They would likely underprice themselves wildly and do their yeah. themselves and a family a disservice. Right. Yeah, yeah it is. You got to know you. You do have to know your market. I mean, you can production rates are great. Gut is great. If you've got the experience, if you've got the experience to do it from your gut. But at the end of the day, you need to know what the market rate is for things and then then decide where you want to be compared. To, you, you can decide I want to be the high price, you know, uh, in the market or the low price, whatever you want to decide, you can decide, but you got to know you can't yep. decide in a vacuum. You need to have some some data for that. And that's exactly it. And there's a whole bunch of things you can do to bump that uh, too with, right. with value adds and things like that. Yeah, <laughs> It's not necessary. So I, I always have this two thoughts about we are kind of a commoditized industry or at least we're commoditized right. in the eyes of our consumers, which is, listen, right. everybody's going to do the outside of my house the same. I just want to find somebody I can reasonably trust and the price has got to be good. We see it as mass customization, which is we're this custom thing. We're bringing a custom thing to you, the client who's asking for something specific. And then there's the weather and then there's this and we're adapting it. We're not McDonald's. We don't have right. one thing we offer. Honestly, I think to the clients, we are way more of a commodity. <clears throat> so sometimes we have to differentiate with like in my company, I, I, I came to terms with that. We're not a purple unicorn, or at least in the eyes of our clients, we know we're different, mm -hmm. but we have to have uh, lots of add-on services like helping with color, moving furniture, cleaning up right. high velocity communication to try to appeal yep. to that. And um, that's the way you can bump your price too. So um, there's right. lots of things you can do to mess with that. Uh, but generally my advice to the entire industry and you with your stream of data, uh, I don't know if you concur or not, but raise your prices folks. I, it's, it, I <laughs> it's wild out there. That's I keep saying that. Uh, that's that's my other besides backlog. That's my other mantra. Raise your prices. Yeah. And again, when, when we say that, like if 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 all of my clients this year were listening to this conversation, I would want them to take that the right way, which is sure. clients would probably not want to hear that. And we don't want to raise prices to reap in stuff that we should not be reaping in right. anyway. The fact of the matter is 99% of our entire industry is a single person owner operator. Yeah. They will likely go out of business in one to three years and they're making $43,000 a year or the equivalent of $21.5 an hour. Um, right. Two thirds of my company, my employees make more than most paint business owners in the United States and they have no risk. So right. when I say raise your prices, I would not say that to a car dealership. Right. Like that is a mature right. sort of thing. It's, it's, right. they're all about the same. There's a market rate. They know their numbers, things like that. If you raise sure. your prices, it's likely you're not going to sell any cars and you'll go out of business for right. painters. I say raise your prices because you're basically giving away your services. Um, right. uh, we had one uh, estimator Andy's car went in to have an electrical problem fixed. And the guy on the phone basically said, it's $150 an hour. I have no 
idea how long it's going to take us. And in the end, we might spend eight, 10 hours exploring. We're going to charge you for that. And then we might suggest a $5,000 fix. And, oh at that, yeah, <laughs> and, at that, and, and at that point, you know, most painting contractors would be like, Oh, client, don't worry about it. You know what? I'll come over and do some color samples. I'll test it out for you. We'll just see. And then, you know what? I'm going to give you a fixed price right now because I feel uneasy about that sort of thing. And we're always just like bending over backwards. This car dealership, they listen, they're going to have somebody who may or may not have even been to tech school doing that work of the exploration for $150 an hour. And he stood his ground. I said, I did what my clients do to me, Tom. You'll love this. But give me an idea. Like, how, how long do you think it will take? And he's like, I'm not going to give you an hour because you're going to hold me accountable to that. I said, oh, I like that. That's what we say, too. <laughs> but he stood his ground, and they charge $150 an hour. Most painters charge $23 an hour for their services. That's why I say raise your prices. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and raise your prices is also about um, when's the last time you raised your prices? I mean, we all, you know, up until, up until a couple months ago, we – you know, even the prior inflation rate was still an inflation rate. So if you haven't raised your prices in five years, even two or three years, you're already behind the market rate and you probably weren't charging enough then to begin with. So you have to, and you don't have to do it all at once, but you gotta, you gotta, it's a constant thing. You gotta keep evaluating it, looking at it and deciding. And if you're providing a, an amazing service and the add-on types of things that you do, clients are still going to pay because they're getting a they're getting a huge value out of that. So you got to do it. It's monstrous, and and uh, again, trust the economics. Um, and yeah. I would say do an experiment. You know, if yeah. if you're a single owner operator, you know what if if you if you go out for a month worth of estimates, let's say you do a couple a week, just test out. Instead of $110, $120 a door and drawer, just try 180 yeah. and see what happens. And I bet you, if you track the data, there's not going to be much difference. But we're so self-conscious about that. So yeah, I know. And no, you know, and nobody wants to screw anybody. I mean, you're not looking for you're trying trying to gouge people. But on the other hand, you need to feed yourself and your and your family and your team. So be fair to everybody, not just to your clients. And what I found, Tom, uh, this would be the last thing I say on it, but I have martyred myself for this. And uh, at when I was a single person painter, I was bringing in over $100,000 a year take home. But it's because I had a $22 an hour job and I worked two and a half of them. I worked 100 right. hours a week in order to do that. So in the end, if you actually added up my hours and then divided by that revenue, yeah. literally $22.25 I was making. I could have made more money yeah. uh, per hour working for another painter a lot of those right. years. So right. I will say this, until I would dare our entire industry to job cost. And oh then you, God, absolutely. And you, can't, you can't hide from those numbers. Once you, you actually can. find out how much revenue you're generating per hour, there's only right. one decision you can make after that if you want to live with yourself. <laughs> right, right. Either raise your prices or go find a company that, like yours that's growing and wants to do the right things that, that understands that part of the business and you, you do your craftsman work. That's, you know, those, that's, a, that's a solution too. That's not the end of the world or a bad solution. That's it. So, Tom, I'm going to let you have the last word because you've, you've sat here and listened to me <laughs> say lots of words. And you've been very kind about that. So, Tom, if, if people want to learn about Estimate Rocket, if they want to learn about job costing, if they want to connect with you, what do they do? Well, go start at EstimateRocket.com. That's, uh, that's certainly a starting point. Uh, we do a lot. In addition to our software, we do a lot of educational opportunities uh, in a variety of different ways that aren't even necessarily related to our software because we do. I do believe that if we help our customers understand more about business, and how it works, then they're going to grow. And then if they grow, you know, we grow. So that's, that's kind of a, that symbiotic, you know, relationship that we want to have with our customers. And we really like to help. My goal is to help people get better and build their businesses. That's what kind of makes my, uh, makes my, uh, uh, my life tick. <laughs> So, Tom, you, you guys were kind of on the tip of the spear. I mean, you have an education guy, somebody that we know and love, Chris Shank. That's how serious you are about that. Absolutely. I've noticed a very interesting trend, especially when you get into these marketing companies who assist 
companies with social media mm-hmm. flyers and things like that. Yeah. Um, they have a very powerful arm of their business that then coaches these contractors and business owners on what to do with the leads because yeah. you know again you can provide the software but if if you if people don't understand the purpose of it the meaning of it right. how to run a business it's useless right. if these yeah, marketing companies yeah if these marketing companies drop a pile of leads and this guy doesn't actually follow up with them then that that contractor will go back to that marketer and be like hey i didn't get any jobs out of this it's like you need to call them that's part of this it's a it's an agreement between us you know so i love that that is the trend with people who do the value add stuff like you which is you're doing a holistic approach to this which is here's an insanely good tool but also here's support and that and for me and guys like me thank you for that that's it. Wouldn't do it any other way. Just like you guys, we're craftsmen too and love doing what we're doing. I love that. Tom, well, thank you so much. You've always been very generous. Check out the podcast too. I absolutely love the interplay between your wife and Chris and all your guests. And uh, I, pre- I appreciate you taking the time to do this. And we always have awesome conversations. So Tom, thank you for me and everybody else for taking the time and, and caring so much about our industry. As always, it was a pleasure, Nick. All right. Have a good weekend, everybody. Thank you so much. We got links to Estimate Rocket here in the show notes. Also, some links to some master's classes. If you want to see me, uh, I will be in late September. I will be taking the estimating master's class and that data that I showed Tom and everybody else. We will be doing that in person in the surf prep facility in Lake Elsinore, California. So it's going to be an awesome time there. I'll get another data point from Southern California for those bedrooms, and we'll talk about it next time. Thanks, Dick. See everybody. Paint Ed podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and is made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPaintEd.org.